New Disruptors listeners, treat yourself to a brand new website with the help of Squarespace, a drag-and-drop, do-it-yourself site platform with everything you need to create exceptional websites. Go to squarespace.com slash new disruptors to start a free trial. Use the offer code new disruptors one when you decide to purchase and you'll receive a 10% discount. That's squarespace.com slash N-E-W-D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S. Offer code N-E-W-D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S, the number one. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that draws a line that connects creators and their audience. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. In this episode, recorded in the field in Seattle, I'm at Maker House, that's H-A-U-S, like Bauhaus, with its founder, Ellie Kemery, and her husband, Mike, the co-founder. Maker House is a makerspace, a combination of working space and tools from the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries to put things together that includes some of the most advanced general-purpose 3D printers and fully kitted out wood and metal shops. Makerspaces are becoming common, but Seattle lacked a full-scale operation with the range of equipment and expertise found in other metropolitan areas. MakerHouse brings a few unique elements to the mix, too, including co-working space and a range of equipment from low-end to super-high-end. A membership-based business, MakerHouse will train people to use its gear, offer classes in hardware and software, and provide staff to handle the highest-end equipment. Welcome, Ellie and Mike, to the podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. We're excited to be here, Glenn. It's yeah. great to be on site. So I was here two months ago when things were, I wouldn't say in disarray, they were in perfect <laughs> array, and now it's middle of January, and you just opened the doors. You're a membership model. How have you gotten started to get people involved in something that's a membership organization? Well, this is something that is highly needed in the Seattle area. So we actually had quite a few members prior to even opening our doors. There was a lot of word of mouth about it just because people are so desperate to have a facility where they can come together and flush their ideas and, you know, really build prototypes that could bring their idea to life. Just in the past, we've had our own experiences and and talked with other people about uh, the ways in which they can get out and actually prototype their ideas. There's a lot of talent, a lot of cognitive surplus, as Clay Shirky uh, uh, describes it, but there's just a lack of accessibility to uh, the equipment that's needed to, to sometimes prototype that. But we felt there's a real need for something like this. Well, it seems odd that we're in Seattle, which is a super advanced technological yeah, city. Yeah, very advanced. Yeah, and like, uh, the, we were talking about this before we started recording that where would you go? You'd go a thousand miles south of San Francisco or further. Yeah. You'd go to New York, maybe Chicago, but we're in this, not a desert. I mean, there are other people in Seattle who've done bits and pieces of this, and some uh, companies have 3D printers they purchase for their own needs, but it, it feels like you know, a 10,000 square foot space, you brought together a lot of different elements. There must have been a crying demand as you talk to people to have everything in one place. Well, it's interesting because you know Mike and I are both very involved in the design community, and so we know people that are aspiring to do Kickstarter projects and things like that. And so they somehow, to your point, they piece it together. Mm-hmm. You know, they find the one person with a laser cutter or the, the one shop that may have a small maker bot type scenario that they can sort of, you know, see what this might look physically or feel like physically. There's so many barriers for them to actually go somewhere and really have at their fingertips like everything that they need to make this idea. That combined with education. So education is something that we found a lot of designers and makers, they tend not to get exposed to things like business and how to make something viable for a marketplace and things like that. And so there was sort of a 
combined sense that not only do we need to provide a place that had professional grade equipment, not, you know, like a MakerBot type scenario, but more a place where you could design for scaled manufacturing. So the tolerances need to be at a certain level. Mike's background in industrial design, he actually in Seattle set up an innovation center at T-Mobile. So well, I helped, um, yeah. helped us set up <laughs> an innovation center at T-Mobile. So, you know, through that experience, he actually, this is not his first time doing something like this necessarily. And yeah, but to answer your question as well, just from experiences working in industrial design and in and around the creative community, a lot of creatives, they all, they have one piece of equipment in their garage. Somebody's got the bandsaw, somebody's got the table saw, somebody's got the disc sander. And we all like, oh, can I borrow that for the weekend? You know, can you bring that over? And we're all jokingly, we're all, you know, a lot of us were always, would always talk about, well, what if we just had one large garage and everyone could dump all their supplies in one area? That way we wouldn't have to uh, run around the city every weekend and, and try to piece things together. Yeah, that's always been a, a, a hot topic of uh, a conversation throughout all the, uh, the different places I've worked. Even doing Kickstarter projects, you know, I'm two Kickstarter projects now and um, just the availability of, of resources for prototyping. And it can be a challenge. Um, and here in Seattle, uh, you know, there are little niches here and there where you can find laser cutting or find little bits and pieces of people that might be able to help you with prototyping. But for the most part, it's, it's, it can be inaccessible just due to the, uh, the price points mm-hmm. and the, the level the, of uh, uh, technology. Uh, a lot of it's in the aerospace industry, so you know, unless you've got a, a really high, you know, $15,000 in a, an aviation brand, sometimes they won't even return your call. We felt that there was a need for a space where people could go, where the prices were more accessible, uh, yet the quality of the equipment was still at a level where it was uh, usable for, for prototyping. I think, um, you know, being somebody that follows trends, there's also a lot of macro trends that kind of led to this project. And, you know, some of those trends being that in Seattle specifically, there's a lot of digital designers that have a real... They work in 2D all the time. That's all they ever get their hands on. And they have a real desire to get hands on with something. And there's a big convergence happening now with digital and analog. Providing a space that you can combine those mediums is huge. It could lead to groundbreaking innovation in wearable technology. I mean, you name it. Um, for healthcare, we've had a lot of innovators around the Seattle area coming here to prototype their invention in and around health, which combines needs of physical casing, but it's a mostly digital technology. Yeah, I come from a print background long ago, and I, my knowledge of how to make 3D things is pretty nil. And even mm-hmm. 2D cutting, you know, making stencils or, or etching and so forth, is pretty much out of my realm. I'm on this like ink on paper or yeah. maybe you know, some other substance on a substrate sure. thing, and I forget how hard it is to pull all the pieces together. If you want to do something, we were talking earlier about Shapeways as a great yeah. service bureau, but it's thousands of miles or tens of thousands. Amsterdam, or they've got an office in the United States now, too. And yeah, they do. A service bureau is great because it gets you what you need, and they can consolidate all the equipment, but there's a turnaround time, the extra cost. There's a turnaround time, and you're removed from the process, so mm-hmm. you lose that learning that happens with prototyping, where you actually see how things come together, and it's trial and error. Mm-hmm. And it allows you to build upon that and advance it to a level you couldn't have done otherwise. I've been talking mostly to people who create stuff for an audience, and mm-hmm. your audience are people who create stuff for an audience, or for, you know, it could be artistic as well, and even that's, of course, got an audience. We've talked in the podcast so far about what breaks down barriers to let people who are creative producers of any kind, yeah. it could be dance, and it could be writing, it could be uh, industrial design, uh, it could be digital uh, things like software, ebooks. how do they get to their audience? You guys are facilitators, and you're the kind of facilitator I'm trying to focus on here too, which is in, in a way you have aspects that are like Kickstarter, Etsy, Square, a lot of the big digital companies that yeah. facilitate physical goods because your goal, it seems to me, is to help people do things. You're not trying to 
get in the way. You're not trying to intercede with fees, with blockages. Not only that, in addition to providing the space, providing the equipment, we also like to think that we're providing a bit of expertise. So like a Shapeways, ideally, you really need a background. You need some education and you're basically sending off your files with the assumption that everything's been worked out and you know what you're doing and what you get back is usable. But there's a lot of people that come here and their their expertise range from, I've never done this before, to I'm professional so, and everywhere in between. So those that come here that, that are brand new, in a lot of cases, they're looking to get educated. They're looking to obtain information from the staff, obtain information from the other members. Mm-hmm. And that's where like the, the community that we're building really becomes a draw for, for a lot of people because they're here not only just for the literal uh, equipment use, but they're also here to learn from others. Uh, yeah, for the mentorship. Build, build um, what they know. Like our entire staff, they all come from professional backgrounds of industrial design and, um, and beyond. And then a lot of the members that we have too, because they all have this deep expertise in something or most of them do. We actually have a program where people can opt in to be mentors and then other members that may be looking for mm-hmm. a, an understanding of a certain area, they can basically tap these fellow members to help mentor them through that. I hear like five different areas, maybe six of education. You've got the, I know that you'll teach people, mm-hmm. you get them trained up so they have the basic skills to use shop equipment. That's right. You've got classes that are going to be more formal, multi-week classes mm-hmm. in, in digital and analog, manual topics. You've got mentorship. You've got networking. You've got co-working. And then the iterative process. I hear yeah. all the time that iteration is a key to learning how to do something better. And sure. when I was trained in graphic design, I was trained by the Swiss. And the Swiss iteration is everything. It's yeah. you do. Uh, there was one fellow who I'd met who'd done, I don't know, 14,000 sketches of the Matterhorn as part of his thesis over five years in his, his graduate school in Switzerland. When I talked to Chris Anderson, for instance, about 3D robotics, his drone, personal drone company, sure. uh, yeah. that was the thing is the more they brought home the more they learn. And then they learn enough, they push it back out. They go to mm-hmm. a higher scale. And then they go, oh, now we're actually making enough stuff It doesn't make sense to have it that far. We pull it back. But the more they could experiment with stuff in-house, the more they learned how to send it out of house, the more they had equipment they could work with and iterate through designs, the more rapidly they could come up with solutions. So you seem to be focused on iteration as well. That's right. I mean, we're a prototyping house. So, like We don't do really even small-scale manufacturing. I mean, people can, but we're designed for prototyping. And Iteration is, is such a prime part, of, the design part of that process. Yeah. I mean, when we were doing our Kickstarter project, for instance, our most recent one, we literally couldn't find any place locally to do it. And so we wound up doing it in Asia. But through that experience, I mean, we lost so much learning. And the, obviously the timelines were, yeah. were longer. But just not knowing, not being able to see physically how this thing is coming together. While we, Mike, because of his background, knows how it all works. And he's been over there. There yeah. was just still so much loss. Yeah, I mean, we're, apply, we we're applying what we know about the design mm-hmm. process and the, quote, design way of thinking to things. So we want to make sure that what we have, our facilities, the equipment, uh, the people around that support everything, uh, we want to make sure it supports the process. So that so you speak of iteration. So we want to make sure that people can prototype something, learn from it, even like do impromptu critiques with others around. Designing in a vacuum can tend to be a little isolating and, and this, limiting. This is graduate school. You're recapitulating yeah. graduate That's school. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, and in a lot of cases, that, those are the stories that we get. People come here because they're independent freelancers, they're independent contractors. They can only take their, their personal skills and careers so far. When you work in a studio, you've got other creatives and other minds around you. You're all together collaborating and building on, on one another's ideas so that your end result can be a lot better that way, as well as your own. You're always Everyone's always learning from one another. No one ever knows everything all in and of themselves in a vacuum. 
So um, you come here, you come up with your ideas, you, people share their ideas, I mean, we see it all the time. There's a group of women who came here the other day and they wanted to start designing luggage and uh, they really had no idea you know, what, how to get started. They had a base understanding, but um, they were looking to us to provide the software skills, the manufacturing skills, the prototyping skills. They had a very base understanding, but they, they're basically coming here to get an education. They hadn't even signed up yet. And so the first thing I said you needed to do, I said, we're not going to just throw you in a class. I said, you need to understand the process. You need, you need to know what you don't know. So immediately we put them in connection with a bag designer that we knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know that's how, that's just an, a small example of how we try to connect people in order to educate them and get them to where, the, where their end goals really need to be. I feel like I want to enumerate everything we're doing here because everything you describe as so many facets is out of thinking about co-working. So that's an right. integral part here. Yeah. You've got mentoring. You've got networking, you've got crits, you've got expert education, and you've got your own, I mean, the networking beyond that, the expertise and networking that you guys have outside of the membership as well. That's another uh, angle, I think, to explore is it intersects with education, Mm -hmm. but it's totally a separate thing because it's about production implementation. Yeah. Tell me how you thought about bringing uh, co-working into that. So other spaces do do it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a space in Brooklyn, for instance, Third Ward, that they have a great co-working area. And we have two guys, for instance, that are furniture designers. And they're they're each independents. They bring people in on big jobs and things like that. But they literally can run a small firm in this space for right around $500, less than that, a month, and have access to everything in here. In addition to that, the ability to not work in isolation mm-hmm. and be around not only the people that are part of that co-working space, but also come out here and cross-pollinate with people in a wide range of backgrounds that are accessing the space you know, after their full-time job or what have you. And it just opens up their world completely. So co-working is, I think, a, even though it's a small portion of what we do because it is, we literally only have room for 10 people, mm-hmm. we see those guys as being sort of incubated in here almost. And we're hoping that they get to the point where they outgrow us and this becomes sort of a launch pad for them and they can eventually have enough funds to have their own space with all the tools that they need and maybe a crew of people. Yeah, when, I mean, when we started, we really didn't know, like from a co-working aspect, mm-hmm. what, what we were going to get, why they would utilize the space. Yeah. But maybe it's just a little corner that they needed. They needed the desk and they and an inexpensive way to, to have a place to go. You know, most a lot of people just... They just can't work in their own homes or they've got roommates or it's just not conducive to being productive in whatever they do. Yeah. And so we just kind of a, a wild card. And most of what we've received so far in terms of membership have been people who are coming to the space for, for what, we, what we call the full enchilada. Yeah. You know, they're, they're here for the co-working, but they're also here for a full membership. So they're literally, like Ellie said, they're using the space to run their business. These are gym rats of uh, <laughs> makerspace. But it's, yeah. I, I don't mean to belittle that because it's, it's the people who, they understand all the equipment. They know how it all works. And they become a positive force because they're here all the time. They try to do their own work. Oh, that's right. But they yeah. actually know stuff. They'll wind up doing stuff as well as anybody who works here does yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, this space is full of whiteboards and it's full of... We try and, by design, create areas where people can cross-pollinate and mingle and have crits, spontaneous crits, you know, just pulling people together, all of those things. And even as a basic member, so basic basic member means that you pay $89 a year and you're, you have access to discounts on classes, but you don't get access to any of the shops. But even as a member at that level, which we have quite a few of, those individuals they come here and they may not have a dedicated desk, but Mm -hmm. they're working in and out around the space during the day and and having those conversations and 
which are getting them beyond challenges that they have, even if they aren't prototyping something. It's a creative third space we're trying to create here. <laughs> you know, as we, always as we talk about this, I think there's so many aspects of the nonprofit, of academic life here. This mm -hmm. is a for-profit business. Mm -hmm. I understand that. But I think it's uh, part of the theme of the new disruptors is there's so many aspects of what's happening in the economy that are cooperative, shared, and everyone can make money, and that's fine. Yeah. But the money arises as a result of having solved problems for people, of removing friction, that's and right. you become part of that cycle. So you make money because it's ostensibly the ultimate goal. You may have investors or not, but you're trying to return an investment. But your primary goal is not to get the last cent from people. It's to raise all the boats, and you're part of that. That's right, yeah. And that's the beauty of this scenario because for us, it's a very altruistic endeavor while the model is incredibly solid, mm -hmm. which will allow this to thrive. But at the same time, we get to be a part of helping people get their start and help them advance to something beyond what they could ever have done on their own. And even if it means that they're leaving their day job and they're actually starting to do something full time or what have you, I mean, probably the most exciting thing for us is to see what kind of innovations happen here and where this takes them. This could be given the wide variety of backgrounds that we have in the Seattle area from everything from industrial designers and mechanical engineers to people that specialize in processing. When you get those kinds of people cross-pollinating, I mean, I can only imagine just, you know, it's going to lead to so many new innovations. I mean, Mike and I have both experienced that professionally when working at companies like Nike or in his scenario at T-Mobile too. I mean, by design, they create this innovation center where they bring in people from seemingly unrelated backgrounds entirely, but it becomes this basically blue sky innovation group just churning out patents and really groundbreaking stuff. And so that can happen here. Tell me about your background, because I know you come from more of a str uh, strategic and branding background. How does do. that lead you into this space? Well, it does because, well, one, I'm married to an industrial designer, <laughs> so, and I'm married to somebody who's by nature an inventor. So he has quite a few patents. I don't even know how many you have now, but... But he's, and for he's, real stuff, thank you. Yeah, and he's, he's, constantly, he's constantly tinkering and thinking of systems, ways in which it's all around problem solving. I mean, that's by nature the design process is all around identifying a gap, identifying a problem or a workaround, that pain point that people are experiencing, and then finding a solution that can alleviate that. And for us, this, there was a massive pain point in the Seattle area <laughs> that, that led us to Maker House. It's funny, too, is I uh, know when I was here a couple months ago, I mentioned Surf Incubator, which yeah. you guys know. They're Seen, part of, yeah. They're part of the, yeah, Seen Grass. And they're part of this community that I feel is burgeoning in Seattle, too. Is mm -hmm. We didn't have a big, there is co-working. There's always been a core of co-working going on in Seattle from, I think, some of the earliest days. Uh, Office Nomads being a notable example right. and expanding. Yeah. They have a lot of space. And there's also been incubators, but they've tended to be very small. And I went to see Surf Incubator, and then I think not long after, I came here, and I thought, oh, you guys are on the same page, is that it's this idea that, that we are all going to raise all, all boats as the water level goes up. In Seattle, the water level is surprisingly low mm -hmm. for this cooperative effort. You know, we're all bailing and putting water into the pool, and other cities have maybe enough industrial base or there's a big enough something that mm -hmm. you guys are trying to create not the feeling of a New York or San Francisco because we have our own vibe in Seattle and the Seattle vibe tends to be very internet-y. It's very generous and sharing and collaborative, but there haven't been places where people can go. And Surf yeah. Incubator, the same thing. You go there, you're running a desk, but you're really renting part of community. They're not, mm -hmm. take, they don't take equity. They're not there to squeeze stuff out of you. Right. They're there to push you together and to, you know, push everyone together and get some fusion to go on as opposed to how much money can we make off you as a customer, a client, or I mean, people go there for the community. They go there for, for knowledge. They go there to fill the gaps of, of what they don't have. 
you know, it's a desk, but it's also, you know, it's also a learning center. You know, I mean, in a lot of, in a lot of ways you make, it, it is what you make of it. You can get in there and get network, make relationships, find the, the missing pieces of the puzzle that you need in order to, to move your business or create your business. Then, you know, it's, it's that much more advent, advantageous for you. I mean, you brought that idea here. I know it's not, I mean, it's not a it's simultaneous invention, but it's yeah. that same feeling of these outposts are different. That's for most, you know, internet-based companies where really most or all of what they're doing is digital, not entirely, but a pretty good hunk of the companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys are not entirely analog. We have to use digital software. Mm-hmm. The digital world is an interface to what we're trying to do in a physical medium, but you're bringing that same spirit of let's all figure this out together. Well, that's, what, yeah. that's what we feel is like really a really exciting side of, what, of our business as well is that there's those that have skills and they're like, oh, okay, I get that. I, I, I come here and I, I know all this stuff and I get it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to utilize this. But there's others that you don't need to be uh, come from a maker background. You don't need to come from a physical world, construction or inter- industrial design or architecture. There's some people, a lot of our, um, our uh, members are, are software engineers or a lot of the interested parties. They've never done anything physical, but they've always, they either have a small aptitude, they work on their own homes, they are their Home Depot rats themselves and they've never had a place to go, or they just have an interest and they're like, you know, you literally, you can be completely green, come here, take a class in CAD, move from there into prototyping either on the 3d printer on the laser cutter slowly build your skills so you can start from ground zero essentially and move uh, through the chain yeah and all along you'll be surrounded by individuals that have probably been doing it for 20 years and so for you to be able to just grab somebody and say hey i'm i'm learning this from day one and can you help me like mentor me through this challenge or that challenge it quickly advances their learning and accelerates the process again with that so i think the great thing about kind of what Seton's doing over at SURF and also what we're doing here is in addition to just providing the space and all these opportunities for people to cross-pollinate, you know, we're bringing in speakers and events that we'll be hosting here that are really designed to push the boundary on everybody's thinking and get us all that much further down the road. Like I, we fully intend, you, you talked about Chris Anderson. We actually have been talking to Chris Anderson a little bit in an effort to get him in here as well to talk about, you know, how he sees um, 3D printing and what it's going to be doing for creating this next industrial revolution, as he calls it. Or guys like John Maeda, who are talking about STEAM, which is a huge initiative. And it's it's really, really big in Seattle right now because we have a huge biotech community here. And when you bring all those different minds together, STEAM being science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and now with this whole idea of bringing art into it, like mm-hmm. artists and designers, because the processes and the, the knowledge base is so different, but yet combined, it's so much greater. What problems can you solve? So we're going to bring people like that in here and people that are doing really amazing things in wearable technology because wearable is, is here and it's, yeah. and it's, <clears throat> that's what everyone's saying. That's the next, I thing. mean, it is every day. There's groundbreaking things happening in that space. And, but a lot of it is, not designed for humans necessarily. It's more technology driven. And mm-hmm. so um, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of ideas around that. And I think it'd be fun to bring in some of those experts to, to sort of discuss what those ideas are and, mm-hmm. and how we might, yes, utilize the technology that, that's out there and that's changing so rapidly, but then also how do we make it valuable to human beings, not um, you know, prevent them from engaging one another and causing issues, but enhance their life. We're at day one, it feels like, in a lot of this stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Wearable technology is, is in process. 
and it's coming, and you have, I think it's $150,000 3D, or $250,000 3D printers, right? Yeah. But those are still, even though if those are some of the most advanced devices made by humanity to do this task, we're still, this is the beginning. This, this is such the, the beginning. middle, right? Or yeah. End. Yeah, because the printers that we have, I mean, right now they, they print a plastic-like resin material, and, and while they do it in high tolerances, you know, there's so much more you can do in 3D printing. Like, there's machines out there that can print conductive materials, mm-hmm. you know, like circuitry. Um, there's machines out there that can print metals and, and actually woods and, like, ceramics. And there's a guy in Denmark that's printing gold, if you want to talk about jewelry, <laughs> you know, it's like wow. all these different things. And then, then there's the idea of materials. And, like, once you learn the properties of something how might you contort its original use, like to maybe create a new use for it? Well, it feels like 3D printing is like where desktop publishing was 20 yeah. years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you had a few fonts. You yeah, could print. It took a right. long time for it to come out of the printer. The software crashed all the time. You have right. this low speed. You're like kind of moving. You know, it's still better than, t- than what I used to do, waxing and taping and cutting. Right. But it's only a little bit better. It's an yeah. analog. It takes something that's a process that was sort of known. It transmutes it into a new realm. But it doesn't necessarily solve all your problems, but that was still day one. The first laser printer was day one. Yeah, like right now, I mean, it's accessible, you know, with MakerBot and some of the lower price point uh, machines. But like des- where desktop publishing was like 20 years ago, it's still inaccessible because the, you know, there's still higher price points or the quality isn't quite there to right. become like mainstream. So the first laser writer, I think, was like $12,000 or mm. something <laughs> yeah. crazy. And the original Macs were thousands right. of dollars in yeah. $1984. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing now is I'm seeing the price come down. It seems like every week there's a new iteration of a low-end thing. I think oh, yeah. I could buy one for $200 something now. It's a very low-resolution Sure. device, but I could buy one if I wanted to start messing around, and that's the gateway drug, right? That leads me up and up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, the, the quality of print and, and product that comes out of the machines we have is, is very, very high, but just like everything else, eventually eventually that'll move down into a more uh, accessible price point for everyone else. So you'll go from or laser cutting high quality prints were really, really inaccessible because of the $12,000 printers you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you know, you'll be able for $1,000 for $500, you know, you'll be able to get a high resolution I would imagine within four to five years from now. And that's where things I think really become disruptive because then everyone's going to start having these these 3d prints that, you know, right now you can go out onto Shapeways or turbo squid or all these online companies and basically download parts. And then it's, it's created, it'll, and it already has, but it's create this other marketplace where people are now rather than, going to the store, you know, generating a carbon footprint to go purchase something <laughs> off a shelf, just like streaming movies. A lot of people, they don't go to the movies anymore. They just sit back mm-hmm. and they stream off of Netflix, right? Well, now you just be able to download your parts. You know, I've even heard uh, talk about the disruption within uh, do-it-yourself in like, Home Depot and Lowe's where yeah. or you go there and rather than, oh, sorry, we're, no one is, will ever be out of stock. You'll only be out of resin. Mm-hmm. So for some inanimate plastic parts, plumbing or electronics or replacement parts for certain things you basically you just go there you'll they'll print those parts for you or you'll call it in and then pick it up well at the infancy of 3d printing back when i don't know how all kinds of other names you know back then it was like rapid prototyping was i think yeah. i still used right rp that's what we use yeah, yeah so it's right, 3d printing is the is right the popular name to visualize it's like an inkjet printer but but it's a different process yeah. and i think early 2000s i did a piece for wired uh gigatrends and it was about rapid prototyping and that was the big jazz then like 12 years ago was you're an airline manufacturer and you need one part and it would cost you $100,000 to get that part mm-hmm. within a short period of time, but it cost you like $5,000 in those days to get a device to 
machine, you know, CNC router to machine it or to do rapid prototyping or whatever the option was. And OJ Leno is the famous example, right? He had something for one of his, some of his motorcycles or cars and he needs parts. And to make one is this whole elaborate mold casting, whatever. He can just print one. And today the quality is good enough that it'll hold up or hold up for his purposes because he doesn't drive them long enough. But as we follow that chain down, right, then it's the, I need an elbow joint of this kind. I call up, they print it, I go there and pick it up in a couple hours and it's affordable for them. And it's cheaper for me because I can get it immediately. So it fills my need, even if it's maybe a slightly more expensive than a mass produced part. Right. That's, that's really where the excitement is. I mean, there's always going to be those engineered polymers that have to be specific to do, to carry a particular load and aerospace. Everything's, you know, regulated and everything's tested to the nth degree. But for a lot of applications, which is where it's really exciting, a lot of the, the polymers that are available coming out of the distant machines, they're good enough. And mm-hmm. that's where that's where it becomes really exciting and really yeah. disruptive. I mean, if I'm, in, if I'm Toys R Us, I'm, I need to seriously be, be considering the future of rapid prototyping and yeah. how I'm going to integrate yeah. that into my business. You know, we've talked a lot about um, what we can do with it. Tell me a little bit about the machinery you have here because I'm, I'm sort of fascinated. I introduced this with saying 19th, 20th, and 21st century tools. And I find that fantastic to have a wood shop and a machine shop, a metal shop, side by side with right. everything else that's here. <laughs> so what's the array of what you've got? We've got a wood shop, we've got a metal shop, and we've got a standard set of really high-quality tools. So not to plug our, uh, our supporters, but you know we've got Powermatic, Jet, a couple of Grizzly pieces um, in our wood shop, in our metal shop. I mean, we've got MIG welding, TIG welding. We've got a three-axis CNC milling machine, step shear, formers, uh, lathe. I mean, these are like yeah. the standard things that you really need in order to be able to create yeah, we still have coming a CNC router that is three-axis, 4 by 8 table that will be in the wood shop, And that, for a lot of people, is going to change the game dramatically. That's what, I want to talk about CNC routing because I feel like that's something... People can understand 3D printing. My young boys, we watch the show called How It's Made, which is yeah. awesome, right? Yeah, yeah it's they a great show. show. And they have the show about, here's how 3D printing works. And it showed every method, and really briefly, but accurately. I'm like, oh my god, they sort of captured it in 10 minutes the whole thing. But when you come down to CNC routing, if I use that term to average people, they can now picture 3D printing. They don't know what compu- what's computer numerical control. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. an obscure term. The term dates back. What does CNC routing do for people that you wouldn't do with 3D printing? Because one is a physical, it's a subtractive method, right? Versus 3D printing, which is usually, usually additive. additive. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, CNC is applied to a lot of different processes. And particular, when we talk about routing, we're talking about like a, a routing table. So this is mm-hmm. like a a flat bed that's either that basically create takes sheets of material you know, up to four by eight. It's a four. Is yeah. it, it's a cube, right? I mean, it's a it's a rectangular. It's like four, a like a sheet of plywood. Mm-hmm. For yeah, or, yeah, like a sheet of plywood. Something you get from Home Depot. I mean, you can do thicker pieces depending on what your what your Z axis you will, will allow. Mm-hmm. But essentially, it's most popularly known for making jigsaw puzzles out of large pieces of plywood or MDF or. or uh, it'll do acrylics, uh, it'll do aluminums, but essentially it's a it's a big router head on a gantry that moves in the X Y Z <laughs> axis. That's got a little like basically a drill bit, it's a machine bit, uh, and it and it creates shapes. And the more expensive you go, right, you can go up and crazily high, right? There are five axes ones. Oh, yeah. There are ones that have multiple heads, right? They can pull in different things, so strange angle it can get. I'm making a gesture, we're not talking all the <laughs> you can go underneath something and get from behind where a less expensive one couldn't make that particular rotation to get there. Yeah, and you're talking then you're talking about thicker pieces of material mm-hmm. and you're talking about designing for molds and designing reliefs and things like that. It runs the it runs the gamut. There's uh, bench top systems that do simple things really really well and then there's larger commercial uh, uh, variations with vacuum tables and things mm-hmm. that'll do, you know, <laughs> deep molds and deep reliefs and 
know, larger parts. So it, it really runs a gamut. I think we'll probably fall somewhere in the in the middle range yeah. and, and be able to probably provide that service once we get it. Some of that space, right? You need more and more space to have these bigger and bigger devices. Right, that's yeah, right. That's um, one of the biggest machines that take up the biggest mm-hmm. footprint. Yeah. yeah. But the great thing about it is like already we see how it's going to impact our members. Like there's a couple of guys that Wallingford Guitar, um, they're a local oh gosh, right. group. And so they're trying to produce guitars. And right now their process is like 60 hours for one guitar. And it's because they're doing it all by hand. But with this CNC router, they're going to cut that down to like six hours. Oh, that's cool. Which makes them more competitive with like the Gibsons and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But yet they're still custom. And it also, to, to your earlier point about the process and iteration, it also speeds that up. So they're yeah. now actually able to iterate. Whereas before, it just right. really wasn't feasible if it's taking you 30 hours to do one. Too, is the yeah. thing. I, this is where I come down as we talked months ago too about letterpress printing. And it's had a resurgence. And one of the things that's driven it, I believe very strongly is photopolymer plates where instead of setting by hand, A, there's not that much type left anymore in the world. Handset type is it's not dead, but no one's, well, there's one place producing new handset type in the world. Mm-hmm. But if I want to set a page of text, I could have a press. You can get refurbished press. I can have the inks. I can have the papers, all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But I can send out and get a photopolymer plate in one piece that is robust. I can print the hell out of it. I can push. I can actually do that deep impression thing because I'm not killing my type. It's photopolymer. I get another piece of it made cheaply. That process lets people doing letterpress take away some of the most tedious aspects. Some people want to do handset for very particular reasons. Even now, that's a small part of the need. The CNC router, the people doing the guitars, there's an aspect, of course, that's craft that they want to have their hands on. But but not every bit of it, not every bit of it. So if they can do the massive forming and take that huge amount of time off, it feels like that's a value you're putting back into their ability to be artists and that's craftspeople. Right. That's right, yeah. Yeah, again, it, it really it just it. it just supports the process. So whether it's acoustically, how does this thing perform, or whether ergonomically, how does it feel? Is it weighted correctly? Proportions? Is it, is it size for me? Are they doing custom designs? I mean, they can move through multiple iterations. They can do four at a time, ten at a time. They can really move through quickly and get to where they need to be. Focus on the important part of the process as opposed to the, the fussy mechanical part that isn't necessarily... Add to the add to what they're doing. Right. Um, I stopped you when we we're talking about woodshop. So tell me. So that's the the analog side is metal shop, woodshop, wood and shop. then you've got a whole digitally driven side. I guess you'd say as opposed to you know it's not an analog side. It's not a digital side. It's the the combination of two worlds. Right. Beyond CNC routing, we've got uh, laser cutting and, and the three D printers we mentioned. So that's something obviously that also supports you know creative processes. And our laser cutter, we've got a large one. It's like a four by three bed with a pass-through so you can do four by eight sheets. It's of this size where you can really do everything from etching to full cuts, etch metals. You can cut cardboard, woods, acrylics. Things like felt le- and leather. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you cut across like every kind of craft industry creation process because yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because so much is 2D and then it's transformed into 3D, but you often start with a 2D design for cutting right. yeah. or templates. I was down in Los Angeles a few weeks ago, and I went to Lumi, which is a... a they're another double Kickstarter outfit. They hmm. took an old formulation. They licensed old formulation of a solar-sensitive ink. So they can make, essentially, it's a fabric ink that you expose, you can selectively expose. And it's fantastically interesting. They will be a future guest on the show, too, what oh, they're doing. Great. It's a multi-year journey to have gotten this ink formulated. But one of the things that's interesting about it, I thought, is it's, again, that great molding of digital and analog is they will benefit from 2D cutting mm-hmm. because you have to mask out the area. And you take a negative to do the actual exposure if you want tonal values. It'll do continuous tone exposure, which is an amazing thing. But you have to 
you could still have the tedious task of cutting up the mask for your negative or of creating a design that was entirely full color, non-color. Again, this gives people the tool where, okay, great, I've got this ink. What am I going to do with it? I can print out from inkjets and so forth, but then I still have these horrible mechanical problems, and this solves that horrible mechanical problem. We didn't touch upon, but it, I think it's probably the centerpiece of the space. We have a materials library oh, yes. that is in the process of being built, and it will be done by our grand opening, which is the 28th of February, probably well before that. And the great thing about this library is it's a partnership between us, Material Connection, which is out of New York, and they specialize in emerging materials. So they're known as sort of a global resource. They, they broker with a lot of small, innovative groups coming out of Europe and, and everywhere. So they'll have things like electroluminescent paper, conductive tape, like wow. things like that, transparent cement, you know, <laughs> things that you would never, ever know exist. Yeah. And so we're partnering with them. We're partnering with a group called Inventables out of Chicago, and they, they are more like a hardware store for designers. So they have like 400 different kinds of plywood. Again, things that are more accessible and readily available, but in vast array of, of variety. And then there's a local company that brokers material with companies that are um, offloading a bunch of stuff. So rather than take it to the dump, they'll match it to designers. So upcycling. Oh, wow. yeah. So repurposing things. Those three groups are helping us curate what's going to be a very robust library. We'll probably start out with about 600 materials mm-hmm. and expand that. We'll not only provide members and with the sourcing for those materials, but we'll continue to evolve the collection Mm -hmm. and bring in new and innovative materials. We're going to bring in speakers that are experts in that space, all those things, because the more exposure people can get to things they've never been exposed to, like materials that are conductive or, or whatnot, once they get exposure to it, it's going to be exciting for us to see what they do with it, you know, and how that it's, how it's, that affects their work. It's another way in which we support the creative process. Yeah. So coming from creative backgrounds for, for the last 15 years, we understand that you, know, you can be inspired by materials. You can come in with the, the assumption that, oh, I'm going to go make this out of mm-hmm. acrylic uh, because that's really all you know. You go up in the materials library for 20 minutes, half an hour, and suddenly there's 19 other possibilities. Yeah. And so it completely changes your design, improves on it. You guys were both at Nike. You had, I'm sure, an incredible resource because they constantly wanted you to be thinking about because you're challenging. Famously, this is how Apple got its resurgence, right, is that Johnny Ive, I think it was, discovered that transparent material they used in the iMac. He found that they could make it. People were using it with uh, vacuum cleaners or something. Okay, yeah. And he's like, this is a translucent plastic. No one's ever seen this color before used in this way, and it... I think it was part of what it, I mean, there's also design and yeah. industrial engineering and so forth. But so when you, were you challenged when you were at Nike, like think about not just how you change the shape, not how you tell people about the product, but right. let's, what can we put into this that is different and new and exciting? That's right. I like the property. So, so the way our library is going to be organized, it's going to be organized by composition Ooh. and each material palette we're calling them um, because each material is going to sit on a palette. Mm-hmm. The palette will show them not only the properties of that material, but the current applications for the material, as well as the sourcing behind it. So, And then our evolution of it is going to be, there's going to be a QR code on the back of it that will link to all the potential applications that are out there, videos of people utilizing it in, in their process. But like things like, there's a material up there, which I'll show you later, is traditionally used for ceiling tiles Mm -hmm. by architects and and commercial spaces. But the material itself has this amazing texture to it, and it's very lightweight, and some of the properties are that it's mold-resistant, water-resistant, but it's it's a beautiful material. And while it's normally hidden behind a tile because it's sound-absorbing, 
I've walked through several industrial designers and they're like, wow, what if you could do this with it? You know, and it's just, it's leading their process. I mean, oftentimes I hear designers say that the design starts with the material. Yep. You I know? Think material science, I feel, is one of those things that are overlooked so much because people focus on the industrial design and the function and they forget that there's this whole other supply chain and create, and that also that people are constantly creating new materials. There's all these companies that are creating new stuff without a purpose for it necessarily. Right. They're pushing it out in the world and people find the purpose and then it becomes maybe a billion dollar line of, of product for one company if they're really right. lucky. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, really a true way to, to, to innovate. I mean, you can do only so many different things with the same material, the same process over and over and over again. So, you know, they actually get really, really down into the core and change the, change the material, change the process. That's where you can really uh, come up with some really good ideas. The membership model that you've chosen, mm -hmm. I know that other uh, makerspaces have also, many of them do membership models too, or a lot of them. I recall you told me before that you were trying to specifically limit the full membership so that the place didn't get oversubscribed. Tell me more about that. Is there a problem? Are you worried about that machines wouldn't be available for long periods yeah, of time? Yeah, I mean, the point of us even doing this is to make the inaccessible accessible, and there comes a point where that isn't possible if you flood the space with, like, especially the shops. So we can have 2,000 basic members mm -hmm. because there are people that aren't accessing the shop, but when it comes to actual physical shops, because we're constrained by space... And there, we're capping the membership to 250 people. And, you know, we'll do a wait list, but I just think in order for us to really help them through their process, Tech Shop, for example, the way that they do it right now is they have 800 to 1,000 members per facility, and they're not much bigger than us. They may have a few thousand square feet more than we do mm -hmm. typically. And, um, but they have all 800 to 1,000 members accessing the shops. And what that creates is a um, queue system. So... If you have an idea and you want to go use the table saw, you have to reserve it in advance. Sure, yeah. but what we're really trying to do is make sure that people are going to be accessing a wood shop, people are going to access the metal shop. Some will be here on the evenings and weekends. Some will be here mm -hmm. during the day. I think we can spread out the, uh, a, a small membership yeah. across every, every area and every scenario and, and be able to comfortably have everybody utilize the space. And people will all know each other too, ostensibly, right? They'll all, uh, 250 people in mm -hmm. and out, that's a, that's enough that our brains can actually, we can meet 250 people yeah. or some subset of them, the people that want to spend time or, or interact with other folks, then you have a real community of that size. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You're in your soft open now as we speak. Your grand opening is, is end of February. Right. And you've already got people, I signed up, I bought a basic membership, I want to come and hang out, I want to take classes, <laughs> yeah. I'm a 2D guy, but so you've got some great response here early on. We've got about 50 well, plus members now, and a lot of them are using the space now, so we also have people signing up for classes because our classes start the first week of March. By design, we keep our classes small, there's like four to six people usually in a class, unless mm -hmm. it's a digital class and there's eight people, but... That's that's great for the process as well. Allow the instructor to engage with the students a lot more. Yeah, it's starting to fill up. We've got great energy yeah, here. We've always got music great. playing. People come out in the flex spaces and just sit down with their laptop, coffee, and utilize the Wi-Fi. Yeah. So the big problem is you're going to be over capacity before you realize <laughs> it, right? Well, we've already talked about scaling. So. <laughs> um, it's but a good yeah, problem to have. Good it's problem a good problem. Yeah. yeah, and we also have like I mean, this week alone, this is only our second week, and it, we have events every day. Mm -hmm. So. So this is going to be a place where people can come constantly, I think. And yeah, get our gallery's filling up right now. We've got um, blank canvases are quickly filling up. We've got a graphic designer putting a piece up on the wall right now. Um, we've got some members uh, that are actually going to be showcasing some of their work. Be part of the Fremont 
first Friday art walk. We've got a couple of big events that are happening where we'll probably have you know, 70 to 150 people come in and, and utilize the space for those events. So yeah, great, great opportunity to network and, and be a part of the community. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for sharing your makerspace with me. Yeah, yeah of course, thank you. anytime. Yeah.